Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn then to John in chapter 12. Our sermon text this morning begins in verse 9 and goes all the way to 36. Although I think, yes, I said 36. I think we'll do 37. So if you have Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. You can use one of those. And read along with me quietly as I read aloud then. This church is the word of the Lord. John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so many signs before them. They still did not believe in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and we praise you for what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would continue to grow us up in him, Lord. As we turn to your word this morning, we pray that it would cause our hearts to grow ever more fond of him. Father, that we would learn even more of who you are and what you have done in Christ for us. So we ask now, Lord, that you would be with us as we look to your word. Teach us from it by your spirit, we pray. And it's in Jesus' precious and most holy name. Amen. The events that I just read that John records in chapter 12 mark a transition in the earthly ministry of Christ. This is what we might call a turn in the narrative, and it's, the turn is seen specifically in Christ's words in verse 23 when he says, the hour has come. Now some of you might remember as we've gone through John, the many times where we saw in John, where we were told in John that Christ's hour had not yet come. And it may be some of you remember all the way back in chapter 2 when Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana when he turned the water into wine. And he said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And at that time, we traced through the book of John that phrase, his hour, recognizing that when he talks about his hour, he's actually talking about his death. So we saw all the way in chapter 2, Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 7, when Jesus turns the, the fish and the bread, in, uh, when he multiplies the fish and bread of the little boy's lunch to feed 5,000 people, we're told at the end of that uh, story that the authorities seek to arrest him and, and John says that they weren't able to because his hour had not yet come. And then we read in chapter eight, the same sort of thing. Authorities are looking to arrest Jesus, but they're not able to, and John tells us why because his appointed hour, his appointed time had not yet come. But now, in the aftermath of what has been called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where it seems to some, at least to the Pharisees, that the whole world is going after him, now, as things seem to be getting better, in a way, oh, it's catching on. The, the messianic fervor has caught on, right? People are proclaiming Jesus as King of Israel. At this point is when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what I want us to see here is that as we go through our study in the book of John, we're in a transition. There's a transition that's about to occur. This is the turn in John from Jesus' public ministry that was marked by many miraculous signs and his powerful preaching, his public preaching, to the hour of his passion, the week leading up to his death. And it's not simply that John just sh shifts his focus, 
But that in his coming to Jerusalem for Passover, and Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, knowing that it would be his last Passover, knowing that his hour was near, Jesus himself shifts his focus. No longer will he perform signs. No longer will his attention be upon teaching the people publicly. And by the end of this chapter, his public teaching is done, and everything else that we get in John is him, his, his intimate teaching with just his disciples before his death. So from here on until the crucifixion, his attention is on preparing his disciples for what is about to happen and for glorifying his heavenly Father and giving up his life as a ransom for many. Now, I've, I've uh, chosen to, to cover what is divided in many of our Bibles into three paragraphs. Really, we're going to focus mostly on the first two paragraphs. And what that means is we're not going to be able to get into the details of the text this morning. But on the other hand, this puts us in a good place for seeing the larger picture here of what's happening. First, we see in this, this section that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's, he's hailed king by this crowd of people that had gathered waiting for him to come. Now, uh, first century historian Josephus records in the latter half of the century that at the time of Passover, there were over two million Jews who would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So when John says a large crowd, we should be thinking not a couple hundred people. We should be thinking a massive crowd of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, hailing him as king. So we read about that first, and then what happens after that? Well, he's sought by these Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then after this, we read of Jesus' response to all of this, all of this that's happening, the crowd welcoming in, Greeks seeking him. We read of Jesus' response, and, and essentially his response is to speak of his death. So that's going to be our course this morning. First, hailed king by the crowd, then sought by Greeks, and then third, we're going to look at his response. So look at verse 12 with me then. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is humming, coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, all four Gospels tell us of this event. When Christ came into, into Jerusalem on the week of his final Passover, the one in which he was going to be the Passover lamb. And the fact that all four Gospels tell this story ought to grab our attention because John was not keen on repeating what had already been recorded by the other Gospels. But some things were too important to leave out, even if they had been already been told before, even if they had already been told three times before. And this is one of those things that John saw as so important that he recorded it, even though he knew John wrote his Gospel last. He knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already recorded this event. And for one, the reason why it was so important was this event was a fulfillment of, of the prophecy, of messianic prophecy, of the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah, the prophet, had foretold that when the Messiah came, there would be a time when he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and it would be a time of an occasion for joyful celebration. 
And this is that, as Peter would have said. That's what Peter says in Acts. This is that. Look, what the prophets spoke about. When they spoke of the Messiah, look, this, this, what is happening here with Jesus is that. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. So this is yet one more piece of evidence for the Jews in the first century that, yes, Jesus was indeed their Messiah. He was the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. But there are other reasons as well for why this event is so significant that it found its way into all four Gospels. It has often been called the triumphal entry. That's probably what it says in your Bible, isn't it? Let me look and see in mine. I shouldn't have closed my Bible. Let's see. Here we go. Oh, yes. Yes, that's it. You see it right there? It says the triumphal entry. Do you know what I think it should say? They wouldn't go with this because it's a little too bulky and a little too long, but an exciting but ultimately disappointing entrance. Probably something along those lines. Some big crash that turned out to be nothing. Some loud noise that turned out to be nothing. Something really exciting that in the end bore no fruit. Now, why do I say that? Well, have you ever thought about what happens after Christ enters Jerusalem to all of this hubbub, to this massive crowd praising him, a multitude of people crying out to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And the Pharisees are all in a tizzy because it seems that everyone in Jerusalem and their brother and sister and cousin and second cousin and aunt and uncle, everyone's going after them or him. And then what? Then what? What happens next? Where does the crowd go when Jesus says that his hour has come and starts to speak of his death? What happens five days later? We're, we're on Sunday here. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Did I count correctly? Yeah, five days later. What happens five days later when Pilate says to the crowd of people, and sure, it's not the exact same crowd of the same people, but he says to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who would you rather me release for you, Jesus or Barabbas, the known robber, insurrectionist? Where were all of these people when Pilate asked that? Because what does the crowd answer then? Give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Where was this large multitude of people five days later? Where did all those people go? And look, this is why I added verse 37, by the way, at the, at the last minute. Because how does the triumphal entry end? How does this story end? Verse 37. Goodness gracious. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So you see what this event shows us. So although this was a fulfillment of prophecy, and it was significant for that reason, the excitement of the crowd that day was a short-lived excitement that did not equate to belief in Christ. It bore no fruit. And we, when you look at all the pieces and you put them all together, it seems that this reception of Jesus was not actually a reception of him at all but of who they thought Jesus would be and wanted Jesus to be. 
And so when he didn't live up to their expectations of him, their excitement was over. Now, it should all, cause, all of this should cause us today to not be so naive to think that excitement over Jesus, whether that's the excitement of a large crowd of people gathered for a conference or the excitement of an individual in a church service, it does not always equate to faith in him or is accompanied by faith in him. People can be excited about Jesus for all sorts of different reasons. And some of them, contrary to actually who he is and the salvation that he came to bring. Which is why, church, oh Christian friend, we must stay in the text. This is why our perception of him must be shaped by his word, by the word concerning him. Because if it isn't, if our understanding of Jesus isn't shaped by his word, by who he actually is, then, when, then we'll just fashion a Jesus for ourselves who looks and sounds and acts just like we want him to look and sound and act like. And when he doesn't live up to our expectations, the reality of our interest in him is exposed as nothing more than vain excitement like this crowd, not lasting faith. So then what about the excitement of this crowd? What was happening in Jerusalem on that day when they hailed Jesus as King of Israel. Well, John tells us that a large crowd had gathered because the people had heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. You remember that in the previous chapter, more and more Jews came to Jerusalem for the Passover, and as more and more Jews came, the talk of the town was, will Jesus come this year? Remember the story of Lazarus and him raising Lazarus from the dead had spread. But also, the people knew that the authorities were out to arrest Jesus. And so the question was, will he risk it? Will he come? And so everyone's wondering that and talking about that. And now, we find out that the cat is out of the bag. Jesus was spotted at Bethany. I know a friend whose cousin was in Bethany yesterday. And they had a meal with Jesus and Lazarus, the guy he raised from the dead, and his sisters. And he to she told me that he said, that her brother said, that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem today. Really? He's coming to Jerusalem today? You can imagine, that starts to spread. And more and more people start to gather. And the word is out that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And, and so this large crowd, it forms in, in anticipation that Jesus is coming. Isn't that incredible? And, how did they know? Well, word got out somehow. What did they, how did they know what hour he would arrive? I don't know. John doesn't tell us. But somehow, somebody knew something. And so this, this great crowd of people, they gather, and they're waiting for him to come. And we can't forget that the Passover is at hand. This is the week of the Passover, which was a yearly reminder of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. So you can imagine the political nationalistic undertones of this feast. You can imagine how this would have stirred up national zeal for independence. This is a Passover. This is the time of the year when we celebrate God's deliverance of us from slavery in Egypt. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, someone says in a loud voice, look, there he is. And then some people grab palm branches, which by the way, at that time, was a symbol of national victory for the Jews. Military victory even. 
and they start waving them in the air. And someone cries, Hosanna, meaning, oh, Lord, save us. And then that catches on, and more and more people start crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they start to chant it. And then someone says, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, the sent one, the Messiah, the King of Israel. Now, what might have begun as just one or two shouts of acclamation caught on, and soon this large crowd of people joins in, chanting, here is our King, here is our salvation, here is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It was surely a sight to behold, and I guarantee if you were there, if I was there, it likely would have caught us up, and we would have been caught up in the moment, in the excitement. We would have been shouting those same things along with the crowd, probably. And it wasn't that their praise of Jesus wasn't true. What they said about him was true. But what did it mean to them that he was king of Israel? What salvation when they said, Hosanna, oh, save us now. What salvation were they looking for? So we should not fail to notice then that Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a steed that day as a military hero. That was not by accident. What many in the crowd that day expected from him was a national deliverance. The enemy they wanted saving from was Rome, not sin and death. The king they expected would bring about his kingdom through military might, not self-sacrifice. They thought maybe he would ride into Jerusalem and straight up into Pilate's headquarters. And this is why he rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. It wasn't because Jesus couldn't manage to borrow a horse. He didn't know someone who owned one. Nor was it because Jesus just didn't feel like walking into Jerusalem and he was too lazy. And so he said to his disciples, find me something, some beast I can ride on. No. It was because of what Zechariah had prophesied about the Messiah. What does a king, what does it mean for a king to ride in on a donkey? What does it mean that the Messiah would be the king who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, Zechariah tells us. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, this is verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Yes, he is bringing salvation. But listen. Not exalted on a, on a steed with armor and a sword on his side. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And listen to what God is going to do. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall, shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of, the of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey that day, Jesus was acting out the prophecy of Zechariah, which declared that the Messiah would come not with military might, declaring war on Israel's enemies, but that his coming would be in humility, 
to bring about peace to the nations. His rule would not be established by violent force, but by what? By a covenant made with his own blood. Now, Jesus didn't deny that he was the Messiah, the King of Israel. But riding on a donkey, he reveals himself to be the king that God had appointed for his purposes, not the king they merely wanted for their purposes. And by the way, those who expected Christ to bring about a national victory over the Romans vastly underestimated the gravity of their situation. Their greatest need wasn't national independence. The greatest need was salvation from the depravity of their own hearts, from the consequences of their own sin, their own rebellion against their own God, from the curse of death that was upon them. They needed a savior who would reconcile them to their God, who would establish a new covenant for them by his blood and give them new hearts by his spirit. That's what they needed. That's not only what they needed, that's what we needed. We can praise the Lord that Christ came as God's anointed king for God's purposes because God knows what God's people need. God knows what his people need. He knows better than we do. And scripture assures us that our deepest needs are met in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the truth is that We may still come to him at times with certain expectations on him that are not in line with his word or his purposes. But we can rest assured, Christian, that he is the savior that we truly need. He's the one we truly need. Just as it was in that day, so it is today that men and women can be excited about Jesus on the basis of their own expectations of him. But genuine faith in the Lord receives Jesus for all that he is and all that he has promised, not who I want him to be and what, what I want him to do for me. There's an important difference between those two. And that means trusting him even when he doesn't do the things that I hoped he would do for me. Trusting that he knows my deepest need. And the truth is that he's a far better savior than we sometimes want him to be because his concern is for our eternal good. And that's where the rub is oftentimes, isn't it? Because we tend to focus on the moment. We tend to see our problems just as the Jews did, as always outside ourselves. Our problems are always outside ourselves, not the sin that is in our hearts that he has come to free us of not just forgive us of, but free us from the bondage of. Well, it is by no accident that right after the Pharisees make the remark that the whole world is going after him, that some Greeks come up to one of the disciples hoping to get a meeting with Jesus. They say, we would see Jesus. What they mean is, we want to meet with him. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Wonderful request. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, it seems that Andrew was the man. 
And when I say he was the man, what I mean is Andrew was the man who brought people to Jesus. We should want to, all of us should want to be like Andrew. This is the third time in John's gospel that Andrew brought someone to Jesus. You know that? Do you remember who Andrew is? Andrew's Peter's brother. Do you know how Peter met Jesus? Andrew. He said, come, you got to come and see. We found the Messiah. I want you to come and meet him. And he took him to Jesus. The boy, five loaves, two fishes. Is that right? Two fishes, five loaves. Five fishes, two loaves. It doesn't matter. He had a little lunch. Who brought him to Jesus? Andrew did. It's a good name. Some of you women who are, you're pregnant right now, you're thinking, well, what would be a good name for our next son? There you go. You're welcome. That's for free. Andrew, you want someone who introduces people to Jesus, don't you? No? This was Andrew. The Greeks come. Some reason they go to Philip. Uh, John mentions that he was from Bethsaida. Perhaps that was a, a, like a town with lots of Greeks in it or something. In any case, they go to Philip. I don't know why Philip doesn't just go to Jesus, but Philip knows Andrew's the guy that brings people to Jesus. So he goes to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip together take these Greeks, to, or, or, or they go to Jesus and tell Jesus that Greeks, these Greek men are looking for them. Now, John doesn't tell us much about these men, other than that they were Greeks and they had come up to Jerusalem to worship at the feast, which probably means they were what the New Testament would call God-fearing Gentiles. So even though they were Gentiles, they were likely men who worshiped the God of Israel. And perhaps they knew of the prophecies concerning Jesus or, or the Jewish Messiah. They were curious to see if Jesus was the man, if he really was the Messiah. Maybe they had seen the, the excitement of the crowd and they knew this guy was something special. And perhaps they were trying to put these pieces together. And whatever the case is, they seek an audience with Christ. And, and when Andrew relates this to Jesus, Jesus' response is not what we might expect. And it probably, by the way, wasn't what any of the disciples expected either. So you imagine Andrew going over there, he whispers in Jesus' ear, Lord, Lord, there, there are some Greeks here, and they've asked to see you. Should, should I bring them over? And then Jesus says, and here's Jesus' answer, the hour, for the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know, Andrew's thinking to himself, what? Did he hear what I said? Wait a second, what does that have to do with what I just said? And what in the world does he mean? Well, he goes on to tell Andrew and Philip what he means, and everyone else who was there. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Philip says to Andrew, what, what is he talking about? Andrew says to him, I think he's talking about his death. And then Jesus goes on, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, and if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. Now, what does this have to do with his entry into Jerusalem and the fact that some Gentiles had come asking to see him? Is he speaking to the situation at hand or is Jesus' mind just somewhere else? Well, think about it for a moment. It's highly unlikely Jesus' mind is just somewhere else, by the way. Think about it for a moment. Why would Jesus speak of his death in response to his disciples telling him 
that Gentiles would like to have an audience with him. It was for this very purpose that Jesus had come to Jerusalem that Passover week. He had come to lay down his life for the sheep, just like he said back in chapter 10. And do you remember what he said when he was talking about laying down his life for his sheep? He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, speaking of Israel. I must bring them also. Now, whether or not his disciples understood it at the time, Jesus was speaking of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. And here now come these Greeks looking to meet with Jesus, and Jesus saw this as a signal that his hour, that the time of his death had come. Why? Because his death would be the means of their inclusion, their participation in his person and in his salvation. In this very same context, as he's speaking to the disciples with the crowd present, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now there again, he's speaking of his death on the cross when he's lifted up on the cross. And his point is that his death will be the drawing of all people to himself. In other words, it is by his death that men and women of every kind, both Jew and Gentile, will be drawn to him. Now, the the literal translation of that phrase is actually just simply, and I will draw all to myself. The word people there is, is added in our English translations just for clarity. But the point is that by his death, Jesus will infallibly bring, he will secure this, he will bring men and women of all sorts, all kinds, all nations, all languages, all ethnicities to himself. Now, John doesn't tell us if these Greeks do meet with Christ in the end or not, but he does record for us these words of Jesus in the midst of misguided expectations of the Jewish crowd and the request of Gentiles to see him. For them to be savingly drawn to Christ, he would need to be lifted up on the cross. Like a seed, he would need to die that the fruit of salvation would come in their lives in the lives of all who would believe on him. 19th century Anglican minister J.C. Ryle said, his death as our substitute and the sacrifice for our sins would draw multitudes out of every nation to believe on him and receive him as their savior. By being crucified for us and not by ascending a temporal throne, he would set up a kingdom in, a world, in the world and gather subjects to himself. And what good news this was for these Greeks that Jesus' hour had come, that he was intent upon fulfilling the mission the Father had given to him. What good news it was for us. Ryle goes on to say, we have a most willing and loving Savior. It was his delight to do his Father's will and to make a way for lost and guilty man to draw near to God in peace. He is just as willing, he is just as willing to receive sinners who come to him now for peace as he was to die for sinners when he held back his power and willingly suffered on the cross. He's just as willing to receive sinners today who come to him in faith as he was to die for them on the cross that day. Now what of the crowd? Because to fully understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to keep the crowd in mind as well. He's not only responding to the message that Andrew relayed to him about the Greeks, 
But he's also speaking to the many Jews who had excitedly just welcomed him in to Jerusalem as the king. And Jesus says here what he says, knowing what is in their hearts. He knows what their expectations of the Messiah are, what they thought his coming into Jerusalem meant for them and for their nation. They were happy to cheer him on. Some of them were ready to follow him all the way to his great military victory. But then, keep that in mind, because then Jesus says, in the midst of all that, Jesus says this in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he talking about there? He's talking about his own death. And then he's talking about them. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. His hour had come for his glory to be revealed and he's saying it's going to be revealed through his death. And this was sobering news to them that the Messiah had come to die. They thought, as they say in verse 35, that the Messiah would remain forever, that he would, he would never die. How could he be lifted up on a Roman cross? How could he be put into the earth as a seed? What good would come from that? Was he not going to defeat the Romans and sit on his throne in Jerusalem? So then Jesus said, says to them, this is the way of my kingdom. It's the cross before the crown. It's death before life. It is humble obedience before exaltation. It is for you the giving up of your life. Your self-rule, your self-determination, your self-love before you can find true life. And we may even say, before you can find your true self in him. Many in the crowd would have perhaps followed Jesus if it meant getting what they wanted from him. Namely, for him to be their hero and free them from the Romans. But that's not why he came. He came to give up his life that he might give eternal life to all who would follow after him. J.C. Ryle comments again as the soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follow its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. Their knowledge may be very weak and their hope very dim, but they believe what Christ says and they strive to do what Christ commands. And of such, Christ declares, they serve me and they are mine. And the comfort that Christ gives to all who follow after him is this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well then, let's take comfort in the words of our Savior. And we should praise the Lord that he did not come to fulfill man's expectations. He didn't even come to fulfill yours, your misguided expectations. 
to but to fulfill the mission that his father had given him to be lifted up on a cross that we might that his people might be forgiven reconciled to God and and follow after him and find their lives hidden in him no longer in this world somewhere no longer in my own agenda trying to add Jesus on as an ornament in my life to get what I want from him so that if I do these things for him, maybe he'll come through for me. But that he would be my life. That I would find life by giving up my life, my autonomy, my doing what I want in life, and instead striving after life in him. That's what he calls all of his disciples, all of his disciples to all who would call on his name, all who would call themselves Christians. This is what Jesus' word to them is. Come after me, follow after me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would work in us that kind of faith that you are looking for. Father, may what happens in our lives not simply be just an excitement over Jesus because of what our expectations are of him, but a true embrace of who he is and what he has promised to do for those who follow after him, the eternal life he gives, and not just the eternal life, meaning just the life that we have after we die, but the abundant life that you give all who seek after your son. We pray that that would bear much fruit in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.